Welcome to the Chopping Wood Inside podcast, the Twin Peaks podcast for conspiracy theorists and aficionados. I'm your host, Murphy. Uh, Tom, dude, you there? Dude. 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 <laughs> How are you? Pretty good. We both got two great uh, early Christmas presents, uh, didn't we? What yeah, fantastic. Um, we got actually a message <laughs> on our Facebook page from uh, someone who's affiliated with uh, Showtime CBS Entertainment asking if we wanted um, uh, copies of the Blu-ray set to review for our podcast. And uh, we were obviously very excited that uh, uh, to be recognized and to actually get these Blu-ray sets, both of us, one for me, one for you, here in Austin in L.A., from uh, Nicole. And I just want to thank her uh, for thinking of us. And uh, a really a great Christmas present, like you say. It's fantastic. Christmas came early, and this has been a fantastic uh, DVD set, Blu-ray, and uh, the extras are just phenomenal, and I can't stop watching it, and uh, it, it's it's incredible. <laughs> yeah, you've been like you jumped into it immediately. You're obsessed, and so you've watched it five thousand times. And I finally got around to it. I've had it for a couple days here, and I was you know I was wasn't feeling too good, having a little bit of the holiday doldrums, and this thing cheered me up, man. I was like super uh, impressed with uh, it was like seven hours of <laughs> of glory. So it was very very exciting and. Uh, I'm super excited to, to review it with you. Let's go. Yeah, it's. I think the highlight for me, um, and I, I presume everyone, is the, I guess it's five hours long, the documentary by Jason S., who has filmed a couple of documentaries uh, on Lynch. The first thing I think he did was a documentary during the production of uh, Inland Empire, and um, he also did The Art Life, which came out, I believe, last year, right before the series premiered. So he has been in Lynch's circle, someone that I think Lynch trusts. And obviously, Lynch uh, decided to let Jason S. come on the set and really document everything. That's what's so fascinating about that documentary is I'm imagining, even though there are locations and scenes that we didn't see, that he was on set for everything. And there's still this footage out there for maybe a later date or what have you, but he got total access to everything. The camera literally in Lynch's face for almost the entire you know, five hours. Yeah, and was amazing. Watching him directly, it was great. <laughs> Yeah, you get to see every emotion. You get to see him act like, you know, the, the, the you know, mercurial, like Lynch. You get to see him be like uh, the Saturnine type of, uh, you know, professor. We get to see him act like a child. You get to see him throw tantrums. You get to see him create uh, and be just a great guy, overall great guy. I was very impressed. I'd never seen so much back, uh, behind the scenes footage of him. And uh, I just wanted to go work for him, do season four. So, uh, yeah, dude, it, just, it, was a, it was a revelation. And it was a, a great uh, salve to our some people might be having some, you know, Trump blues or something going on right now, like I did. So, and other things. But, dude, it was great. It was like a pick me up. So, yeah, where do we start, man? It's like seven or eight. How many hours is, is all this stuff combined? Well, I think the Thanks. Jason S. documentary is around five hours. And then there's the uh, the Richard Bamer, who we call Dick Beamer. Um, his documentaries, ben I think, Horn. total about an hour. Ben Horn, yeah. And I think there's another, well, there's another documentary on location. Um, in the Snoqualmie North Bend area that's about 25 minutes long. And then there's the Comic-Con panel, which is about an hour that was moderated by, I think, uh, Lindelhoff. Lindelhoff, who, yeah. Yeah, did, he did The Leftovers, right? And Lost? Yeah, and Lost, yeah. yeah. Like, he loves Lynch. Yeah. He's a huge Lynch. Didn't he do one of the uh, – he would come on the Entertainment Weekly podcast? Yeah, like two times. or three times. Yeah, I listened yeah. to all of them. He's really good. He's super so I think good. So. 
total, I think there was about between like, you know, seven, eight hours maybe of, yeah. of footage. Did you watch it on one night? It took me a couple nights. <laughs> I watched the entire um, <laughs> Jason S. documentary in one night. So that five hours. And, yeah, I did that uh, too. I couldn't stop watching it. It was like 42 parts and I just like let it run. I don't know how many hours it was. <laughs> right. It was like five hours, it was like eight right. o'clock and then two o'clock. I was like, whoa, it's two o'clock in the morning. Well, I don't know. Did you have the same kind of feeling? Well, it wasn't the same feeling when this, you know, the new season of Twin Peaks arrived, when we would have a new episode every Sunday night. It was something that I really hadn't felt since the original series. I mean, Twin Peaks is my favorite series of all time. I really don't watch a lot of television. It's kind of like a wife or a girlfriend or being in love. You don't really kind of stray. I've really just you know, st- stuck with Twin Peaks for all Yeah, we talked about that last night. I was like, so you're going to stay in the Twin Peaks silo for the, maybe potentially the rest of your life. And without it at season four, you were like, what was your answer? Uh, yeah, I think I yeah. was going to stay in the silo for a while. <laughs> yeah, the bunker. That's good. I'll be the your bunker. connection to the outside world. You'll be in there like plotting up uh, new solutions and stuff. So that's good. Well, no, do you? I mean, we're going to we're here to talk about the Blu-ray set. But um, when I was watching before, I think before the Blu-ray set arrived, I was watching again part seventeen and eighteen, which I had been on an endless loop. And I noticed during um, the sheriff's station scene, right before uh, NATO was transforming to Diane, you know, you had the Cooper superimposition the huge cooper face over that whole scene at one point and uh the way that cooper's face and his eyebrows over nato's face the eyebrows were in a place like around her forehead that could match what was on mr c's playing card the mysterious you know object that mr c was after so i went down this huge rabbit hole i think last weekend on reddit and other forums uh, typing up all kinds of stuff that uh, I think I pitched to you, but uh, you were in full Blu-ray mode at that point. But we're going to be talking about that later. But uh, th- so I, I'm just I think there's we're just scratching the surface of all of these mysteries in you know this 18-hour opus that um, that we're going to be dissecting and discussing for I mean years at least I certainly will be. Well, yeah, for the rest of your life, as you said. So. <laughs> I'm excited. So, yeah, dude. So, and it also, like, we haven't even mentioned, like, how great the picture quality is on the actual of the episodes. They look, like, at least 30% better. They're, woo, popping. Really good. Yeah, I, I agree. I popped in I, I, 17 and 18. That was, well, because I think the Dick Beamer documentary, uh, his two documentaries are on um, that same disc. So I watched 17 and 18, and it, it just looks incredible. I'm not someone. Yeah, I'm watching can, it right now, my friends. It looks great. Oh, you have it in the background right now? Yeah, oh, that's, that's great. great. I mean, I don't have the technical jargon to give specs and everything, the crispness and all the... But I just know aesthetically from watching it on my TV off of, uh, you know, the Showtime app on Hulu um, that uh, it it is like roughly like a quarter, you know, better. Like the picture quality, the sound quality, especially for me, there were times when I was watching the original... um, you know, uh, when it was premiering every week, I would have to jack it up to like 80 or 90, like almost a full volume to hear these little subtleties. And I rarely did I use my earbuds or anything, but with this new Blu-ray set, I don't really, I don't have to do that. I, it's just so much crisper and uh, it's going to, uh, having this rewatch again with these Blu-rays is going to be a whole new experience. But what I was going to ask you before I went off on this, this tangent was this, Joseph, this Jason Joseph, you were calling him Joseph. Yeah, S. Joseph K. Yeah, <laughs> Joseph K. Joseph. <laughs> Jason S. But, but he uh, sounds like Werner Herzog, and he kind of has like he's got, he kind of got a vibe, like the man with the elevated gray hair. He's got a mystique to him, and so I want to call him Joseph S. because he, he reminds me of some Kafka character. Yeah, but it's not him. He's he. There's some. I, I wrote it down. It's some. I think he's the narrator's German different. You're saying. Yeah, his narrator is different, but he has this Werner Herzog-esque voice, which is very kind of hypnotizing. But <laughs> yeah, he speaks in riddles. It's great. <laughs> yeah. And uh, but each one of these, when I was watching it for the first time, it, it evoked the you know watching the previous series, season three. Like each, it was like a new episode, even though it wasn't like a narrative. It wasn't like a new episode of Twin Peaks, but it was the world of Twin Peaks, and it was David Lynch specifically on set and seeing all the behind the scenes uh, minutia was just so thrilling that I, I just, I couldn't stop and I wanted more. I was going like, well, why didn't you show, you know, these, you know, locations or these scenes? Why'd you, fo-? I, I just wanted everything. I got very greedy, but I'm very thankful for what, for, uh, for what we got. Did you have the kind of the same feeling when you had it on the, the play all when you were watching it? Yeah, I mean, I could just sit here and watch the whole thing. So it's like I couldn't stop watching it. It's like it was compelling. It's like I was like, somebody should put this on like uh, IFC or something. It's like a great documentary in itself yeah. besides uh, 
and it's long as shit. It could be like a series, you know what I mean? Like, so I wonder if it's going to ever sneak out, but, uh, it was a, a monumental achievement in itself. And like, there was another one, maybe the Beamer one was great too. And the Charles D. Lorzikas, I think we had another one that was good. But uh, yeah, that one really stood out. But this is the highlight, I think, of yeah. the of the set. Well, dude, I, it's like he's really with him, like you're saying. You get, and I love to see him Lynch kind of like stressing out and freaking out and having to go, you know, talking about the schedule and not having a you know a chance to dream and you know and, and then seeing how they diffuse him and stuff. <laughs> it's funny as shit, and like it, it was like almost like a mockumentary at times. Like uh, Werner Herzog's like, you know, why is the man with the great elevated hair so angry? And then they do like the montage of him just flipping out, like, can we shoot? Can we shoot? And he's just, <laughs> Everyone's just walking around, like, you know, slowly. He's just like, God damn it, you know, because he's having to sit around. And, like, he, and then they also rushed him through tons of stuff, you know. And I would like to see, like, there is a season four, maybe, like, uh, he has, a, you know, more chance to dream. And he's not rushing through 5,000 locations and 18 episodes and however many days it was to be able to, you know, have something that's maybe smaller and, uh, you know, probably more Lynchian and abstract. I think that would be a cool. Because he looks tired. At the end, you see the evolution. It's wearing on him. It's it's hard. He's fucking 70 years old, dude. We'd be exhausted, you know? And he's this complete, like, quarterback. Like, he's in charge of everything, dude. There's not anybody else that's, you know... And everyone else, like, is just helping him achieve the dream. So he's got got his hand in everything. And that's a, man, a monumental... It takes a lot of energy, I'm sure. So... Yeah, there was this great moment. They had these... They would intercut uh, moments like kind of production meetings. And I'm assuming it was at Lynch's house. You can kind of see in the back backdrop, you live very close to him. It, it just looks very similar to that particular area. So I'm assuming like on a Saturday or Sunday when they weren't filming, you know, Sabrina Sutherland and, and Scott Cameron, the first AD, you hear their voices, would come to Lynch's house and they would you know, be planning out that week's, you know, uh, you know, shooting schedule basically. And near the end of that documentary there's a moment where they're discussing shooting at the great northern and um i think scott cameron says well we're only going to have two days because of like ashley judd's availability and lynch freaks out and it really i think it just (laughs) it just kind of boiled up for him because he he mentions two uh, days that's it like (laughs) all the great northern deaths he freaked out yeah yeah he freaked out because he then he he mentioned the fireman's mansion which that's what he calls the fireman's domain his the mansion that he only got to spend, I think, two days there, and he could have spent like a week there. Yeah, and he, did, a week. he didn't have time to dream and to experiment, and he said, never again, never, never again. And I was like, right on, brother. But on the flip side, I thought, well, you and Frost created this huge, sprawling, <laughs> yeah, epic narrative <laughs> that, come on, you know, you got to figure that, you know, there was going to be some kind of like budgetary limitations and what have you. But I, you understand, at least, you know, I think you and I understand, and I'm sure most of the fans, that Lynch, money doesn't really matter. It's all about the art. And if, you know, he wants to spend time in a particular location to dream and to experiment, he is going to want that. I mean, he can get very ornery and uh, and I wouldn't say hostile, but it's all for the sake of art. He, you, you see him freak out, but he's never like, you know, he always comes it. out immediately. Like he's always yeah. very good about like he's got the Zen, but he's able to go retain the chi and they know how to diffuse them. No one ever like, you know. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like I love the looks of their faces sometimes. He's like, why is everyone asking me like how about it's got to be too long. The scene's too long. You got to cut it. Got to cut it. And he's like, stop it. What the fuck matters? How long a scene is. And it's like, you see like him really like he he's in it so much that, uh, it's just, uh, it's funny as shit, dude. It's really great. Yeah. I laughed a lot. <laughs> it, it really, yeah. There was so many moments in this uh, a documentary. And really, I think if, if anyone had seen, I think it's called Lynch One, which was the first documentary that uh, Jason has shot during the production of Inland Empire. It's very similar, but that production was pretty much Lynch as a one-man band um, doing pretty much everything. I think he was even financing it. So you didn't really have a lot of people on set. There were scant locations. But now here you have this really big budget production and you you see it. You see the, the, the radio station. He mentions how he wanted to do it on the cheap. And the production designer, I think her name is Ruth... Ruth, Ruthie, Ruth is, I think, yeah, her name is Ruth. Ruth Young. Yeah, yeah. And she built basically like a fully functioning a radio, radio station. station. Inside the CBS studio, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's like, he, it's a whole, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we could broadcast from here, yeah. And uh, it cost him like $500,000. And uh, they, they the, said, Sabrina said that wasn't true, that he was exaggerating. Right, probably. Know, yeah. But uh, <laughs> he, it just, it's just so fascinating to see all these different facets of the production. But and I would assume, other than Dune, 
that this was Lynch's biggest production. And on Dune, I, he didn't have Final Cut. I mean, it was a you know, De Laurentiis, a Dino De What do you think the budget was? Give us a, what do you think, $35 million? Well, they said, okay, so I, I try to kind of figure this out, like, in the beginning. Like, I, I found out, what, like, Homeland. I think Homeland, which is another Showtime uh, production, cost between, like, 3 and $4 million per episode. And, but I think their season's only, like, 9 or maybe 10. So, you know, you do the math, and we're talking between, you know, probably 30 and, and $40 million. My guess is this was originally supposed to be a 9-episode season, but... Obviously, it changed. It was 18 hours, and I think he got some more money. My gut is it was probably originally between that 30 and 40 million, but probably got bumped up maybe closer to 50 million. I mean, that's just a guess, you know. So, but here he is at 70, you know, at, you know, at the, at the t- I still think at the top of his game with this money, but there still are limitations and there are frustrations for him that he just wants to play. There's a great moment where he's in the jail cell. Uh, before he rehearses the scene with uh, Lillard and uh, his wife Phyllis and Lynch is checking out the jail scene and, and he sits down and he's beaming he's in jail he's sitting on this cot and he's like you know all I need is like you know some paint I can live here yeah. I can live here yeah, he's like I, can, I need a paintbrush and a yeah, palette he could ah. a spacious uh, cell he could imagine staying there yeah, yeah so just really just <laughs> he got into everything so see, he got so much into every character like he was like I mean nearly in tears like shooting like that one scene with Sizemore when, when uh, Dougie was like rubbing his shoulders the dandruff shoulders <laughs> right. like and like he was like I mean I was like is he crying like he really was in like you know when he would you know get into the scenes with like the spike he would like you know go smash that fucker in like and get into that character like he was really into to every ounce that he was conjuring it is channeling every character through him constantly you know and repeating and barking it out during the scene <laughs> like Naomi this that he was it was crazy it was like a seal he was just like barking it out and because uh, he just had he had a perfect idea and he was using them almost like uh, like stretch Armstrongs or little like characters like that's what I think is so great about like Kyle is he's just like like a chameleon he could do anything and he's like so positive and he's just like yes Let's do it. And he, he pulls it off. And all some things were dangerous in the Red Room, all those scenes where he had to jump into the, the, the black Garma Bazia and stuff. Like, some of that shit was kind of dangerous, and he just pulls it off seamlessly. I was really impressed with, with uh, Kyle. I would want him on any, any uh, movie I ever made. Yeah, doesn't Lynch at one, yeah. Uh, doesn't Lynch at one point say Kyle's a magician? Yeah, he really is. He's like a he perfect really, actor yeah, for Lynch. I, yeah, yeah, and it's very I malleable. Think... He just like does. He goes and he's like just does. He's, he doesn't have a super. He's not like he has a super strong idea. He's there to be a another receptor, like to be a receiver of what Lynch is channeling through himself. You know. Well, they have this shorthand thing, you know? between the yeah. two because of their history, but they had not worked together in you know more than twenty years since Fire Walk with Me. So it was great to see them on set. There's a couple of moments. I think uh, in the uh, the documentary that was shot on location where his first scene was on location at the sheriff's station as Mr. C in part 17. And he shows up dressed as Mr. C and he's got this look on his face when, you know, he hears Lynch say, Kale, and uh, they just embrace. And, you know, obviously they've been talking before that and, and, and everything, but just to be on set, I think after 20 plus years, almost 25 years, in the world of Twin Peaks again, you can see the love. And that was another thing, like when everyone was wrapped, how Lynch would get everyone around and, and just let everyone know that this is a, you know so this person's final day and just the adulation and the love, you see it everywhere. And uh, that's why I, the, you know the moments of, of anger and frustration. That's just reality. And uh, but well, he you, took it on the crew as well. He never took it on the actors. <laughs> that's true, really. Right? Yeah, <laughs> like, right, that's true. Crew. Like Cameron yeah. and like all the assistant, AD, yeah, all the people around him were just the ones that took it. But uh, for most part, actually, I think we're not characterizing it properly because I think he was really a great personality throughout the entire thing. He just had moments of stress, and that was probably like ten minutes of it. <laughs> oh yeah, it, he was. A, he was a, yeah, he was a gent. It's perfect. But he knew that was another aspect of this documentary is there were a few moments where he was actually like, you know, about to rehearse a scene where he needed or not necessarily needed was getting the dialogue or the scene description from the script supervisor. He had he knew everything. And when watching the series, 
you know, he's reciting lines of dialogue. I mean, he is telecommunicating with the actors and almost acting out how he wants them to act out in rehearsal. And then when he is directing, he's doing the same thing. And like you said, those moments where you see the tight shot of him looking into his monitor with the, you know, with the, the bullhorn, you know, at, at call, that he is in that moment. He is feeling, he is so tapped into uh, the, the moment. I would guess that that is one of his areas of, of genius, of uh, his specific brand, is to be able to recognize and get inside that moment to match what he has in his head. Because that's what he's going for with each and every scene. And I don't think that he's going to yell cut or move on until he gets what he wants. And, uh, and, and it's, a, it's a testament to his, I think, uh, directorial prowess that he doesn't shoot a lot of takes, but there is one moment with Andy. We were just talking about this. <laughs> what was it? Forty-seven takes or 40, something? Yeah, forty-plus takes. Uh, Andy just closing that uh, the, the station wagon door, <laughs> <laughs> and the shot of like Lynch's face, like cringing, like God damn it, ain't cut right. again. <laughs> and then they, then Wally Brando did two takes. <laughs> Wally two takes. His father Andy forty takes. Yeah, wasn't that great? The whole That's Wally hilarious. Brando speech. That was like a five-minute scene, wasn't it? Yeah, he just nailed it twice. He nailed it. And uh, that was it. Yeah. So, so many wonderful, glorious moments that I, I mean, I, I wrote down like a ton of notes. I mean, there's a couple of bits here uh, related to past productions. There's two in, uh, specifically that I want to talk about. The first time he meets up with uh, David Patrick Kelly, Jerry Horn in the woods that uh, I think one of the first things that uh, David Patrick Kelly mentions is the death scene of Harry Dean Stanton. Um, yeah, and while which is one of our favorite yeah, you know moments in, in that film and for some reason uh, you know David Patrick Kelly mentions it and I think he mentions the direction that he gave Harry Dean and he mentions I think something about like an autobi- uh, autobiography of a yogi and yeah. like a, like a it's like a, a book yeah like a, a soul leaving a saint's body and that was just like just fascinating and David Patrick Kelly remembered that after you know 25 years and then then the farm scene with one of the characters I think is name is Muddy, but his actor, I think is, I think it's Frank Collison. I think that's his name. He was in Wild at Heart and he was in the big tuna scene. Oh, that's right. And, that's right. and, uh, and he meets Lynch on the set and you can hear him say like, Hey, remember Wild at Heart? You know, the night in big tuna, 360 degree pan all night long. Yeah. So I was just like one of those things. It was just like these people remember, you know, these moments with Lynch and just to get little bits of, of insight from some of his actors. I mean, just adds to the experience of watching this documentary. Well, and also he brought back not only the actors, but like the crew. Like I thought like, you know, when uh, in the <laughs> the Jason S one, when he was like y- y- yelling at people, I was like, wow, these guys are like Showtime, you know, stooges that they brought on. And then I realized that they were, because he was like, you're the worst crew I've ever had. Then later he's like, you're the best ever. I love you. But it turns out they're the, the same crew from Twin Peaks. They're like the same ones he's worked with like for years and years and years, right? Yeah, doesn't he awesome. say at some point, like you all have worked with a bunch of different people, but I've only worked with you all. Yeah. So um, that's it. I mean, it's like a family. And he said that. I mean, he originally wanted Jack Fisk, who is one of his best friends. It goes back, you know, he grew up with Jack Fisk in, in Virginia, in Alexandria. And, and you know, he was in Eraserhead. He's married to Sissy Spacek. And he did the uh, production design on uh, Mulholland Drive and The Straight Story. And uh, he wanted Jack Fisk to do, you know, the, build the sets with him. And he called him up one day and said, hey, you know, I got you know, Twin Peaks to, you know, come get your paintbrush and let's start building sets. And he was doing The Revenant, uh, the uh, movie, the Leo DiCaprio movie that came out you know, a year or two ago. And he couldn't do it. And he recommended, recommended Ruth DeYoung, um, who was his protege. But Lynch, when he gets a production, he, start, he brings out the, you know, the Rolodex and starts calling all the familiar people. He just wants to work with his family. And I, I don't think it's just because he can get away with, you know, getting angry now and again. It's because, you know, it's a shorthand. They know how he works and what he wants, and he can just keep it real with them. And I'm assuming that once Lynch calls them, that they'll just hop to it and, uh, and of course, work with David Lynch. I'd be there. I'm not, I don't even know him. I'd go yeah, there. I'd work there. for, you know, I'll be like Riley. Do, Riley, do all Riley Lynch's. Uh, <laughs> he's like the PA the whole time just hanging around. I was like, I'd, I'd do that role very well. Even Did you like that Riley bit in the red room with uh, the horse, like painting? Or <laughs> oh, yeah, petting it? the horse, petting yeah. Troy, the pony. <laughs> well, the thing is, yeah, I mean, so should we talk? There were some things that were like, uh, there were kind of clues, like potential oh, clues. Oh, yeah, go ahead. You yeah. know, like the first one, like Nido, like, he, he says that Nido lives in the fireman's mansion. 
Lynch well, says it out of his mouth. Is that is he saying that like just to get a performance out of the actor, or is he because that's the thing is a lot of these actors like he's like the Audrey's or Sherilyn's like you know I'm not going to ask you because you're not going to tell me and like we got to right. see many instances where he's just saying like to Jerry why is Jerry running like he's looking for it he's trying to find it you know he's not going to tell you what it is. Um, so I wonder like the clues that we did get where he was explaining stuff to the actors, um, whether they were legit, uh, part of the canon and he was giving us little insights or they were just uh, methods of getting the performance out of the actor. Yeah, I think it's the latter. I think what he is doing is, is that he's giving direction to the actor in the moment. Now there might be some relevancy to the subtext of the scene, but I, I think that there are a couple of instances, uh, there's one in the red room where he is directing or, or giving direction to Laura Dern. And there's a moment where he's about to say something and he looks yeah. directly at the camera and he gives a look and it cuts. Like he was about to reveal oh. something at that moment. And you can tell. And you, you've, I've seen that on a Mulholland Drive extra at the party scene towards the end of Mulholland Drive where he's directing uh, Justin Throw, Naomi Watts, and, and Laura uh, uh, Herring. And he sees a camera and he like looks at it and they like stop. So there are moments I think when he is going to reveal something that you know, might be in the mysterious realm that he does not want recorded. So what I deduce is what we're getting, all this great insight is more motivation for the actor. So whatever he's telling like NATO about like, you're like a little animal, like stretch your, your yeah, neck stretch out your neck. and all these other moments. It's like to help that actor get in the mood, but it's not, I don't think it's like matching up with like the, the enigmas that are within his mind or the, all the subtext of the mystery of the rabbit holes. That's just my opinion on that. I mean, because I, I would think that that is counter to everything Lynch is about. He wants to keep the mystery alive. And Well, it's just for our argument's purposes. Do you think Nido lives in the mansion? <laughs> <laughs> all that said. <laughs> right. Because that's um, compelling, huh? Like, okay, right? I think like, it's that's interesting. I, I completely agree with you, and I think that kind of makes sense. Clover. The rooms look the same, right? The the, this, the the molding, and that's what I was thinking. Maybe they're just like referring to that's where they shot it was in the same right. set, you know? Yeah, but maybe not. Well, I, I but there's still that there's the purple sea that um, is outside of the fireman's mansion and outside of where we Nida's. saw Na uh, yeah. NATO, and um, so and. You know, I'm yeah, assuming it could be just like another angle of the, I mean, it looks, it looks like it. It makes sense. Right. Yeah. But the oh, difference the, is the outside. It looks like it. It does. The difference is yeah. the, the color there's that that's the NATO scene is color and all the firemen scenes are in black and white. And I think that was done for a specific reason. Um, so I, I don't, this opens up a whole thing that I think we're going to talk about with NATO. We've got some new theories that we're going to discuss in future podcasts, but um, just to answer your question, I think that uh, it, it is similar uh, and I think it might very well be a reference to his line to Cooper in part one. This is in the notion that, you know, we have this, you know, mother-like being knocking at the door and, you know, helping Cooper, maybe not helping Cooper. Uh, there's all these things that I've been thinking about. And the big clue for me was NATO's Rev, uh, you know, reveal her scene in part 14 near Jack Rabbit's palace. I was like, why was she nude? I mean, we saw her, you know, you know, falling, free falling through space. And here she does, she lands in Twin Peaks and she's nude. Now you can have all kinds of like subtext, like, you know, birthing, um, a cleansing. It burned off in reentry. Or burned off in reentry. But <laughs> I was thinking that if, if, if NATO was somehow connected to Judy, and if that's what Mr. C was wanting, the coordinates was leading to uh, that location and it wasn't trying to necessarily you know, punk, uh, penetrate uh, the fireman's mansion, it was to meet up with Judy. And if NATO was Judy, and if we go into Frost's book where he discusses the you know, eventual uh, reunion of Judy and Bob, it would ultimately mean the end of the world, that maybe what was going on subtextually there what mr c was intending to find was nato nude signifying or symbolizing like a like a sex scene like them coming together so i don't want to go too far off into this because we're going to discuss it further but um that's kind of where i'm leaning right now yeah well we've talked about this kind of i think that like nato is we'll talk briefly because we're going to talk more about the, the 
the DVD. Yeah. But like, I still think that like you know, the Judy is like Naito could very well be like a, a trick of Judy, like another fa- many faces of Judy, or like the Judy children, or like you know manifestations of Judy, like uh, maybe Sarah, or maybe like Mrs. Tremont. Um, throughout this dream that he goes through within the lodge, like the unified, going back to the unified lodge theory, that it was all like this crazy lodge dream. Um, and that maybe Nida was not necessarily Judy herself, but just like one of the many faces of Judy. Yeah, that's a strong possibility as well. Yeah, yeah the children of Judy, as you mentioned. Yeah, like Sarah. Well, it's almost like he's trying to set pitfalls, like, tra- like Judy's trying to set traps for him throughout this whole thing to fall back into it. And like, you know, one of them is like, yeah, I think that's. That, that she's nude there and that that might have been like the Bob and Judy copulation moment that that was what he was trying to do like Mr. C that's that's interesting I think that's probably that's very valid but there was some other weird shit like the the way they did like the accountant in like the farm yeah, yeah, <laughs> dude he seems that? like a lodge member dude like it seems like <laughs> that guy and like the window washer and you could just name off a bunch of weird shit that went on that that all could be like you know the lodge entities kind of piercing through like they're just kind of here we're all laid on top of each other they're somehow connected to earth and then they kind of pierce through every once in a while. Like that big Ed reflection that glitched and the accountant right. was really, because the way he was giving him directions, even it seemed like he was a special character. He meant something. And the way he was staying, it was just, it gave me a, a, a Lodgian feeling in the documentary. Yeah. One of the big things too, was during the, one of the Rancho Rosa scenes, I think they were about to film the car explosion and they were discussing the details of it. And Lynch was going over everything. And he was very specific that there's no one around. There's no one around. And we never saw anyone in that Rancho Rosa community yeah. other no than, way. you know, Cooper as Dougie, Jade, and 119 and her son. And obviously the killers. the killers, you know, which was tied into, I think, the dream, the story, dream, the, story yeah. the unified lodge theory. So yeah. that, yeah. And like you said, the Polish accountant and the and, uh, the Polish accountant. And yeah, the accountant. he definitely is a lodge member, I think, or like a white lodge. Right? I don't know what. He, I still think he might be a fireman's plant, like a Freddy plant. Yeah, that's still, yeah, that whole thing opens up a whole new can of worms. I don't want to digress too much, but when Cooper says in part 17, are you Freddy? And, you know, to, to have that knowledge, that that insight, knowing it without any context from previous scenes really kind of just reinforces the notion of that, that, that whole Cooper uh, uh, narrative from three to, to that moment is like pretty much like, you know, in his head. For the most part, yeah, I think. how would he know? He wouldn't know anything about it. Right, that. exactly. But, oh, before, I, I just one thing I don't want to forget, because I want to spend at least a little bit of time, because I, for me, I think the most interesting, but I think disturbing, there's a few moments that are a little bit disturbing in, in you know, these documentaries, but mostly, you know, it's just like fly on the wall stuff. It's just, you know, utterly fascinating. But that little, like, three or four minute scene with Grace Zabriskie oh, and dude, Lynch. Yeah. I mean, that was freakish. That was like they're in the movie already. She it was, was like the lights are out. And he's whispering in your, and it was like they were shorthand in this weird like. She was like, so they're she's watching the animals kill each other. He's like, that's right. And she's like, oh yeah, she likes that. Oh, she likes that good. She's like so, in a trance, like, what? right? Yeah. yeah, she's in it. Yeah, she's in. It. He's like, you got three things. He's whispering, and I don't know what I couldn't. I had to put the subtitles on, but I was like, they're speaking in some Lodgian language that they're. I don't know. It felt like she was super channeling. Uh, yeah, I think it it's scary. just something that. Lynch is able to create on set and it depends on what they're shooting and he wanted to create a certain mood on that set and you saw it it was very dark and his direction talking with Grace Sabrisky was very intimate and he was like whispering and going over everything and the way that Jason S was cutting to Laura's picture and the fan it really yeah, he goes and then like number he had three things to do like one two and then three was the and he just pointed or looked at the Laura yeah. picture on the thing. he was like you gotta get it you gotta get it you gotta smash yeah, it and then <laughs> and then he was like I love you I love you he's like I love, you, like, so much. I love yeah, you, you so much I love you so much I mean well that... think of it this way he's like dude he's created this like ultimate evil character and say that she is Judy or Sarah's got a little Judy in her whatever that behind her face is like, uh, it's just like Heath Ledger going to the Joker. Like Grace has got to go, get, go meet Judy. Yeah. You know, she's got to co- inhabit it. It's got to be scary as shit and, uh, and very strange. And uh, so she had to go there, and he he sent her there in a very masterful, inter- amazing way and chilling. Yeah, <laughs> I'm scared. I, you like know, maybe he knows something we don't. Like just saying, he's channeling all this. Maybe the Judy's real. Maybe all this shit. Maybe he's the bug. He's the bug. The child of the bug girl or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, time, yeah. you know, one of the interesting things from one of the, I think the the, the quinoa uh, documentary or the little uh, uh, supplement on the Inland Empire uh, DVD where he cooks quinoa. And uh, 
he while it's you know on the stove, he goes outside, smokes a cigarette, and the camera goes with him, and he tells a story about being with, I think it was Jack Fisk. I could be wrong about that. When they were traveling through Europe in the '60s, they were in, I don't know, Yugoslavia or Hungary, somewhere in Eastern Europe, and um, that he that he had like a, a, a memory of seeing like a bug or bugs that were very similar to what he created in Part Eight. And he tells a fascinating story. If you want, I think you can find it on YouTube. I recommend anyone to, to, to cue it up. It's just just to see look uh, Lynch cooking in his kitchen and then telling this fascinating story. But I think that stuck with him. I think that was one of these ideas that was in his like black box for many years, and he was able to um, pull it out and and then you know, put it in you know Sarah Palmer. But you know, at one point, Grace Abriski, we didn't get it in this documentary, but. You know she had to ask Lynch, like, why am I, you know, going and stabbing and trying to destroy my daughter's homecoming picture? I mean, to, to try to get into character. Well, you think that, think, but she didn't. Yeah. Well, we didn't, didn't see that. I, I would yeah. assume that she asked <laughs> that. But maybe she didn't need to. She's just yeah. so talented. She just kind of got it. But another uh, 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 interesting rehearsal and, and, and a few scenes that we got, and it was more than I thought we were going to get, was Sherilyn Fenn, the Audrey Horn. That was yeah, right. Was great. Wasn't that the yeah. sharing a smoke? And what was the line she said about uh, a brat? She called Lynch a brat. Well, no, she's like, well, she, he was trying to go like, well, here's your yelling at Charlie, trying to give her direction about the Charlie scene. And like, you know, and she's like, you're just a brat. Basically what you did is, cause remember the, the story goes that she was supposed to be a hairdresser and she was supposed to be in the scene where, uh, you know, Dickie Horn chokes her and freaks out. Like that was supposed to be her, it was Sylvia. But uh, so she freaked out on David and says she didn't want to do that scene. And so David wrote a, wrote her character freaking out on Charlie the way that apparently Sherilyn freaked out on David. <laughs> she was like, "You're just a brat. You wrote it. You wrote it like me." <laughs> so right. I thought that was really funny. Yeah, they had a great rapport. They, they, those two of them were really good. Yeah, you can tell that um, she is. Doesn't he describe her as like a Hellcat or something at one point? Yeah, and uh, she just speaks her mind, but yeah, you great. know that he really respects and loves her. And for me, it was that scene where they were rehearsing. And Lynch was standing behind her and he's just, you know, so in the moment. And at a couple of moments, he just, he just walks up to her and he whispers in her ear. And, and then I think she like whispered to him. It's just, it's creating that mood on the set. You just know that it's so helpful to the actors because they don't know more often than not, I'm, I'm assuming what the hell it, it means. I mean, you have all these moments where Lynch is talking to Tim Roth on the phone or talking to James Belushi and he hasn't even met him and he's telling like their whole character arc. I mean, they don't even read the script. He just hired them because of their yeah, look yeah. and he just reads them the whole script and then they get on set and he's like, hey, how you doing, Buster? And uh, starts rehearsing. So they're, they, they're cold. They don't know what the hell they're doing other than these lines on a page. But Lynch goes in full director mode and is able to communicate in shorthand and sometimes just by acting out the scene. And that's one of the, the great things about Lynch is going back to the very beginning is that he is always, he has a great, obviously, visual aesthetic. He's, I think, the greatest sound designer, filmmaker, sound designer of all time. But to actually get the performances that he gets from you know, A-listers like a Laura Dern or a Kyle McLaughlin or Nicolas Cage back in the day when, you know, well, we both liked him. But to get, like, great, uh, you know, <laughs> great uh, performances like from, the, yeah. you know, just, you know, like an Amy Shields, I mean, who I'd never seen before. And she you know, is fantastic as Candy. I thought she gave one of the best performances. We didn't get a lot of her on set. I would have loved to have seen more of those uh, scenes with her. But he, he's able to communicate from top to bottom. Not to say that people that have like fewer scenes aren't as talented, but he just is always able to get these great performances from everyone. And it just, it just adds, it's just another um, aspect of his canvas. It's just a character moving and saying things on this big like canvas that he is actually painting and, and he's controlling. And for me, the greatest documentary that I had ever seen about like a film production was Hearts of Darkness was the uh, about oh the, god uh, yeah that's great that is <laughs> apocalypse now <laughs> is apocalypse now that is so Dennis Hopper is going losing his shit yeah the Coppola, whole thing oh my god yeah, I mean it, it's so just good. great and uh, it, this is different because I mean there was obviously the drama on that set and 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 uh, all the things going on it's a different beast it's 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 shot differently it's got a different kind of aesthetic but what we got here 
with this Jason S. documentary and the insight and David Lynch and the world of Twin Peaks is right up there with like the greatest documentaries on the process of filmmaking and of production that I've ever seen. Oh, wow. And you've seen a lot of them, too. That's high praise. Yeah, it was interesting seeing, like, you know, when he was working with Forrester, like Truman, <laughs> in the scene where, like, Bobby starts crying on his Laura picture. And he was like, you saw Forrester was like, so uh, did Bobby and Laura know each other? <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> like, what the fuck? <laughs> it was like, did Forrester even, like, watch the original series at all? <laughs> he just showed up. <laughs> did they know each other? Yeah. One of the things that it, it's not a criticism because I think that there's footage of this somewhere. And my gut is at some point, whether it's a season four or um, they package together season three with the first two seasons of Fire Walk With Me with like the new entire mystery that we'll get some more supplemental material from this documentary. But the absence of some of our, you know, familiar Twin Peaks characters like, you know, Big Ed and Norma Nadine, Shelley, Jacoby, uh, Jacoby um, James. And we saw a little bit of him in the sheriff's station. But I, I was surprised that we didn't get any footage um, from them since they obviously were part of, of the original series. And and how great would it have been to see at least, for me, at least to get that diner scene with the Otis Redding song with uh, Big Ed and Norma. I would love to have seen Lynch's face directing that because how, how he gets so involved in the scene. But I, I'm hopeful we'll get to see that at, at some other point. Yeah, I loved how he was giving uh, scenery to Dido, like direction, like with the orb and stuff. Like yeah. he was so into that, dude. It was great. And like at some point he was like, you know, I could, when he was talking about how he could spend a weekend here, he was like, just he's talking about taking down like some, I don't know what he had, some some props up, up on the, he was like, that's, you got to get rid of that. And like, we'll do it tomorrow. And then like uh, Cameron, I think was like, the the assistant director was like, well, you know, David, it's 4.30. <laughs> and I was wondering, is it 4.30 in the morning or 4.30 in the afternoon? Because <laughs> they're in the, they're in the, uh, the, the, uh, the fireman's uh, you know, theater. So we don't know whether it's day or night. What do you think? Was it 4.30 a.m.? Well, I, I, we talked about this and I thought like, yeah, it's 4.30 <laughs> in the morning. It's like, you know, it's kind of just wrap it up. You know, people want to go home. We're going to probably be back in the morning. But then I remembered the scene um, on location, I think they were about to, they were going to shoot something the following day. And I think Scott Cameron was saying like, well, uh, Pete's got to set everything at Pete, Peter Deming, the, the DP. And Lynch was like, you know, we're going to be out in the you know, middle of the day and Pete is not going to want to shoot when the sun is directly ahead and we're not going to wind up shooting till 430. I think he actually said 430. And he's well, like, that's sundown. That's outside though. You know what well, I'm that's, saying? that's true. Oh, you're right. That's sunlight. true. Yeah. yeah, but wasn't that a great story about? He was like, "I'm going to be in my trailer meditating from 8:30 to 4:30." Yeah, it was a great repartee going back and forth about that. It was pretty funny. It's true. Why did he, he was pissed off? He had to, they were setting up. They were slow. It's like he had to, the union. I guess like the old teamsters, the old cliche. Like they were just sitting around because that one scene with the with the uh, yeah they were in Las Vegas. Uh, with a Polish account and he's like can we please shoot and he did it for like two minutes in a row can we please shoot and then like just cut to everybody just like kind of no one's really hurrying <laughs> it's kind of like it was pretty funny it was great there was a lot of humor into it but oh there's another uh, another uh, potential revelation or I think that this is a revelation it was that Philip Jeffries or was the orb and not the tea kettle yeah right you thought that that yeah. there's that shadow and there's that circle of light where we see the smoke yeah. And you were like, like hey, yeah, yeah. It the, emanates the, like it's emanating smoke, right. the tea kettle steaming. And that's allowing Philip Jeffries to reveal himself as an orb. It's not a golden orb, you know, because he's not Laura. But I think there's lots of orbs going on. And he's that that version of an orb. Yeah, that for me, that was a big like revelation. And you you mentioned it to me like a couple of weeks ago. I never even thought of that. And then I watched it again. I was like, I think you're exactly right. And then watching the documentary and then Lynch even says that Jeffries face will appear within that orb during that scene. Uh, yeah. But we never, we never got that. <laughs> that you know, hilarious. So. It was David. I'm glad they didn't do that though. Yeah. I'm kind of glad they didn't do that though. I agree. Actually it would have been, it would have been like Wizard of Oz. I think it would have been hilarious. I would have loved it. <laughs> but still it was great that way. It would have, that's, I didn't even think about that. The Wizard of Oz. He loves that movie. That's exactly right. Well, there was a couple of things, right? That um, let's talk about, uh, spend a few moments talking about um, some of the things that, we didn't see in the series that were discussed uh, behind the scenes. Oh, yeah, they were cut. They're like lines that were cut and stuff. Like in the Red Room, there were several things that were very illuminating, I think. Potentially. Yeah, there were no scenes, right, where they were at a location that, that were cut. I mean, pretty much everything no. we saw. Everything was used. Yeah. Right, but there were lines. So 
in the red room doesn't Laura say to Cooper like when she says I'm dead yet I live um, she also um, says uh, you, you see, see me, me alive. alive yeah like yeah and then she says like do you remember me I think that was the, the sequence it was supposed to go but right. they just cut out the you see me alive so that's now, interesting like it's an yeah what does that mean well there's also it, it, it could tie in I, I don't know but this was another interesting uh, thing that, that I heard, I'm sure you all heard it as well, was at some point, I think it was right before Cheryl Lee appeared on set, you hear one of the crew members, I think it was Scott Cameron, the uh, first AD, say you hear him say Carrie Page. So yeah. why would Carrie Page, why would they say Carrie Page in the Red Room, um, in the Lodge? So that was very interesting. So is it possible that who we saw in was Carrie Page part two. I mean, yeah. Like, so think of that. If all the red room stuff we saw was Carrie Page. Yeah. But doesn't she say I am Laura Palmer? I mean, she says yeah. that at some point, but yet I live, but yet I live. You see me alive. And, and just, see, that also ties into potential that it's all still a part of his dream and that she is still dead. And all she's saying, like, you see me alive, <laughs> right. but no one else, you know, I'm dead, but yet I live because you are in this dream world and you are uh, manifesting me. You see me alive. You know, right. that's why I'm going to disappear also, in front of your eyes in like a minute, you know? Right. And it could also be maybe some foreshadowing. Well, we don't know if is it future or is it past, but at some point in part 18, maybe she has that foresight where he actually does see her in Odessa. So by her saying, you see me alive is the foreshadowing that eventually you're going to actually see me outside of this purgatory or dream state that we're in. So. Yeah, it could be you'll see me alive. I didn't. We said we didn't. I think really it was you, line. wasn't it? Was it? I, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I, it was you. Yeah. So that was. I mean, that was even just here we are, just trying to you know pick up any of these little clues. But that was a huge one. I thought because that we could do like a whole podcast just on that line. Uh, but yeah. there were a couple of uh, other. Well, the fireman moments. had an interesting one too, right? The one you well, see, I didn't hear it, but you had an interpretation of what the fireman's cut line was, which was compelling. Yeah, so he's in uh, uh, his mansion, and I'm presuming it was during you know the scenes in, in Part 8. Well, I'm sure they shot a lot of that at the same time, but he's actually recording his dialogue um, into a phone in reverse, and then you know it, it plays back so he can get all you know the inflection right. And at one point before that, he's trying to get the word sycamore down. So at some point, he was supposed to say sycamore, which is wow. I mean, what what would what would the context of that? I mean, we saw Sycamore Street with. Or you'll uh, see me in the sycamore trees again. Like maybe that's you would see. Yeah, something, but that. But yeah. he does the closed captioning. You don't hear. You don't. You're not able to read what the lines that he said. How they come out. But the closed caption, the subtitles show you what he was actually saying in reverse. And I have it written down. And I think. It, if I, I tried to phonetically do it backwards, I think what he's saying is, I am every everyone. I think that's what it is. I've got it written down here somewhere, but I think that's what he was saying. Is like, I am everyone. And I was is, like... Is he God? Is, is Fireman God? Is that what he's saying? <laughs> I don't know, but I mean... If that was one of the cut <laughs> lines, I mean, that turned the sound up really loud, and I thought I heard it. I heard because they were putting it into this like the phone. It, they sh the Showtime should have like a Twin Peaks Red Room app, and you put your you could say your the the lines and they reverse it for you. Because I don't know, does the normal phones do that, or do they have apps that do? They've they got to have an app, but you know what? It wasn't. I am everyone. I am every man. That's what it was. I am every man. I am every man. Like I am, I am in every man. I'm like God. I'm the light. Yeah. So and then I'm he also man. showed up in the Red Room in the lodge in the. Uh, yeah, uh, that was the line. He was supposed to say the line. Oh, the yeah, that's record. right. That's right. But they cut it. But he showed Maybe it would have revealed too much. Yeah, but for him... Too, now, like, uh, yeah. Well, we know we saw him in the original series in episode 29, and he was the doppel of... Um, or the, uh, the host or the spirit within Senior Tool Cup. So we've seen him there, but it that if we would have seen him in the the red room in this series with everything else that we got i mean that would have just we would have had so much more to 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 discuss i mean that would have i mean that would have really 
I think blown a lot of people's theories like kind of out of the water and created new theories because um, there seems to be a very strong line of like kind of demarcation where the fireman is on one side and Judy is on the other. And everyone really kind of wants to associate Judy with uh, the Red Room, the Black Lodge, and not put the fireman there, even though we saw the giant there in the original series. But if that was kind of the intention, that would have really kind of just messed with everything and then and kind of, I think, changed a lot of interpretations of, uh, of these motives of, of our characters. One and the same. Dude, it would have made it feel like it's all a Cooper dream. Yeah, really. Yeah, seriously. You know? Yeah, it really would have. Yeah. And even though we... without that demarcation of like the Black Lodge versus the White Lodge, the Fireman versus Judy, you know what I'm saying? Like, that's what we. Uh, you got that sense that that's why, you know, he was like, you're in our house now. It seems like he was talking from his uh, fortress, you know, and the, 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 right. the fireman was uh, giving Coop could go between both, you know, but maybe not. Maybe it's all just a Cooper dream, dude. It's all just one, you know, he's just in the loop. Well, yeah, that's the whole thing. It's like, it's really like kind of axiomatic is that, like I was saying, the whole Judy and, 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 the, and, and the fireman, and especially with part 18, it just seems like that is the culmination with Cooper and his narrative, at least the second narrative with, is it the story of the little girl who lived down the lane, that the chess pieces, you know, are, we're getting closer to kind of an end game. And what Cooper is going through is, uh, you know, kind of basically being directed by the firemen, but being kind of manipulated or living in kind of the Judy underworld or in this Judy pocket universe or, you know, a continuation of the Black Lodge. But it is, it is like separate. And if we kind of, if we can go along the lines of what Lynch was intending, Lynch and Frost were intending by including the firemen in the world of the Black Lodge, it throws all that, you know, out. But can we can we really go there since it wasn't part of this narrative and it was just a a, a blip and you know uh, in these behind the scenes uh, you know this documentary. Well of course we can go there. We got lots of time to fill. We got lots of life to fill, friend. <laughs> yeah, me, yeah, me. <laughs> there was also another clip though, like when he was trying to he was a uh, directing Senorita Dido and when she was walking across uh, to the fireman she was like like do it like walk like a cherub a yeah, cherub right yeah. you know and the way she was blessing the he was showing her how to bless the orb that was very like religious you know what I'm saying that had like all kinds of like he's a god like he's god and she's her cherub Fireman's God and Dino was her chair. Yeah, he, she's like one of these, you know, angels. And maybe she's one of yeah, Laura's an angel. angels. Um, yeah, obviously, she, you know, saw Laura, touched or, Laura, you know, kissed Laura, sent Laura off. She was the one that actually sent Laura, the Laura orb, to our world. You know, the fireman yeah. just, he created her or dreamed her up. I mean, that's another um, interesting uh, thing that we saw rewatching it is the golden emanation from the fireman comes from his head. And I think we mentioned this, like, and he's, you had mentioned he's like prone, like he was like sleeping that, that yeah, what we're dreamer. seeing that Laura is like sending the ultimate the, dreamer. the dream, right? Yeah. <laughs> the ultimate dream. Fireman's the ultimate dreamer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and like Blob, there was a scene like where he was talking about like Cooper at 17 Lynch wanted to have like Bob to like rain black rain down on the sheriff station after he left. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, that's like the blackness, dark, yeah. the evil of the world, the, the, ne the extreme negative force. And then you have like the glorious cherubs and the firemen with the, the beautiful orbs. And, you know, it's like, we've got that. But uh, it does seem like if, if, if they, maybe that's why he, he cut the scene, didn't want to have the firemen in there because he didn't want to blend it. Yeah, boy. I mean, he just, yeah. I mean, there was a reason why. I mean, I think it's, it's fluid, right? I mean, he had a script, they had a blueprint and he knew, I mean, watching him, you know, he, he uh, is in the moment. He knows exactly what he wants. I think he knows exactly what it means, at least to him. But for whatever reason, maybe it, it was too revealing. Maybe like he needed to pull back to create a little bit more mystery. Maybe he wanted to have that very clear line of demarcation. So we, we don't know. But that whole scene that you mentioned about in the sheriff's station with... Um, uh, with uh, the black rain, he also mentions he really goes into detail about the the Bob bubble, the black orb, and how dark it is. And he really is acting it out in the production meeting. And at one point during the battle, he says the Bob's arms come out of the bubble and start punching Freddy. And uh, we never got that. <laughs> I'm kind of glad that didn't. Happen. Yeah, I know, right? That would have been hilarious. But also, remember he asked, like he was sitting there in his director's chair, and you know he's he's ruminating. And he's, he's doing like, you know, his his uh, 
his hand gestures. And uh, you actually had uh, some uh, some names for all of his hand gestures, didn't you? Come up with oh some yeah, stuff? like the invisible doorknob was just the first one. There was like, well, one was the smoky digits, which he used a lot because he had the cigarette <laughs> going, he had the portable <laughs> ashtray, and yeah, I noticed he didn't like, but he had it. He had it in his hand often. And wait, didn't you say he got the way he holds his cigarette like Gilgood from uh, from Elephant oh, Man? Oh yeah, yeah. So um, so in Elephant <laughs> Man, <laughs> he was so fascinated by John Gilgood the way that he smoked his cigarette, and he what he did was that he held it in uh, his hand with his thumb and his uh, index and middle finger like upright, so it was like vertical. And uh, then he would bring it to his lips, and Lynch was just fascinated. He was because he was all he was immaculate. He was just there wasn't like an ash on him, and that was the reason why when when Lynch asked him like why do you hold it that way? It was because he likes to be very uh, he's very fastidious. He likes to be very tidy, and he doesn't like ashes getting up. So he likes to hold it out a little bit and upright. And you've seen or this is the first time I've seen Lynch adopt that. I'm sure he had been doing it ever since he started smoking, but he took. The, the Gilgood like move um, for his own cigarettes. But Lynch doesn't seem to be as fastidious as uh, Sir John Gilgood. But I thought that was an interesting tidbit. Yeah, he had really long like ashes. Yeah, right. Because he didn't take many drags. So that was one. And then he also had the wacky wiggler, which he was like, he would use. <laughs> and then I think he also had the magician. And then he did the tippy taps. And then there's like a kneading air kind of thing he does. Which I also called like push the sky, and then oh. there's like the blood, the bloody atrocity, which is the bloody finger. Oh, that that was, wasn't that great with the <laughs> the whole bloody dough face and sticking his bloody I'm finger. Stick my finger in your mouth. It's gonna get weird. <laughs> she oh, was like, all right, let's go. Oh, uh, before but I they, forget, she put it in, she, they did reversal though. They put the her finger in his mouth later. Put the big yeah, she threw the on his big play doh on his face, <laughs> the big bread dough on his face. Yeah, I thought that was great. But before I forget, when he was uh, in the the sheriff's station, which was interesting was that he he reveals that he had no idea how he was gonna like block that scene like shoot that scene he's like i got no idea and and the the first ad said like well you got the weekend to figure it out and he's like i've been thinking about it a long longer than that that, buddy (laughs) (laughs) years (laughs) so uh but he he asks for like a dozen eggs and some creamed corn and what he did was is he put the eggs and the cream corn with some like kind of black paint or tar around the hole in the floor where the bob bubble went after Freddie punched it. And when I watched part 17 again, you can see it. That was a kind of the residue of the black uh, bob bubble was the, the, dark, the evil like Garmin Bozia that Mr. C vomited in, in part three, which is a little like subtlety that I never picked up on. I probably never would have picked up on if I hadn't seen that part in, in the documentary. So um, just a little touch yeah, we there. Yeah, see a lot of behind the scenes stuff. That's why he was yelling about that like plaster of paint. He was trying to, that was going to be the golden <laughs> goop. Didn't he freak the, out? <laughs> Jack Rabbit's palace. Yeah, I was like, God damn it. Because he specifically said exactly, like it's yellow, it's in a red box, it's this and that. And they're like, got it. And they came back and it's wrong. Plaster of Paris. He's like, God <laughs> fucking shit. Morons. Oh. Dude, one great story before we go is like, didn't you love the how, because he asked the, uh, Al Strabell how he, he lost his arm. And he's like, well, you've asked me this before. <laughs> but that story was amazing, dude. Yeah, wow. I mean, right. He was like in a car accident in Wisconsin, Madison, Wisconsin, like 60 years ago, like in the middle of he's winter. A he's a rebel he, driving fast. Right. Did he wind up in a tree or something? Yeah, like grew up like 65, got shot at 65. He has black ice, kind of like from the lodge. Was on this, then he hit the black ice and then flipped like 8 million times. And he got jettisoned out of the sunroof. And he said shot 65 feet in the air and landed in like a elm tree next to this house and he like he left his body like his head right. he had to pull his like scalp back and uh he had left his body and somehow um the, there was somehow like an emt guy or someone had like emergency equipment in that the house right below him and the guy was asleep and somehow the guy he, he thought he maybe used his uh spirit to uh wake that guy up to come out and check on him because that's how he saved his life was because he was stuck up in a tree. <laughs> he happened to be right next to an EMT. <laughs> right, and then crazy. he mentions that the the nerve in his back, it still he feels it to this day, makes his left arm like feel like it's still there. And he described it as like a pot of boiling oil. And he's just kind <laughs> of learned to kind oh of live God. with that. Can you imagine? Dude, that's horrible. Yeah, he's like every sec. So respect his performance because every time he feels like his missing arm is like in a boiling pot of oil. Yeah, that Jesus was yeah. Christ, and Christ, I, I was that was a great story and to see him uh, being directed and just to see these actors him and Shirley and even McLaughlin at some points having to uh, not not only speak backwards well not McLaughlin but uh, everyone else and then act backwards and how you know they, they do it and they piece it together um, 
is uh, you know, obviously very difficult to do, but it creates a very distinct, unique kind of dreamlike quality, which Lynch obviously fell in love with the first time he did it in you know the original series. Uh, what, the, the very uh, interesting bit about that was when he was directing Laura to move to Cooper and to kiss him and ultimately to whisper in his ear is that Sabrina, who Sabrina Sutherland, the executive producer, who really has about four lines of dialogue in the entire five hour, but we see her almost as in much every as Lynch, scene. right? Like she's right over his shoulder the entire time, yeah. Always behind him, like on a laptop. <laughs> well, she queued up that scene on YouTube on her laptop. Yeah, that was awesome. To show the original scene. The original, the original scene. Stage, yeah. yeah, I thought it was very curious, very interesting. Yeah, so. Um, what did you think about his direction to uh, to Diane and Dale? Like about what they'd been doing, having a reunion that they'd both been in the lodge, and like that that was very on the nose. You know, we didn't. We, there was none of that overtly stated. You know, he's talking about that they had a secret affair and all this stuff. Like it was very interesting to hear how he was coaching them. And what do you think about that? Whether being part of the canon or just like a coaching technique? Yeah, I think it was more of a coaching technique because he actually says that once he sees NATO trans. Uh, kind of transform the mask. The NATO mask is removed, and he sees Diane. That to, to McLaughlin, he says that. So that's who was in the mansion room. He actually says that. So he puts together NATO with Diane, and then he goes into greater detail about them having the secret, like love affair that they even kept from Gordon. And I think what he's doing is, is that he's he wants to get a certain quality. Uh, from their performances. So I don't think that um, that's what his intention was to uh, reveal anything. It was other than to give the actors the motivation to give the performance that he needed in the context of that scene. But if you want to read into it, like on the surface, I mean, that's what it is. I mean, it that that was Diane was NATO. Uh, they had the secret affair for 25 years. They've both been dealing, obviously, um, with the supernatural forces that have kept them away from their true selves and the real world for 25 years. And now they reconnect after 25 years and they're going to continue on their, their new journey. So, I mean, you can kind of read into it, but it, that for me, that's like less interesting. Um, yeah, because I was like implying in 18 that like when he saw, when he came through the sycamore trees, I guess it was 17, or uh, and he saw her again, like, is it really you? Yes, it is. And then they just, are you ready to do this? Here they got to go in 18 and going to go back in time. And they were like a team. And I was thinking like maybe that they had been trapped in the lodge for 25 years and had <laughs> seen each other and had adventures and, you know, like they were time traveling around um, that, they, that, 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 that they had seen each other in the lodge in the last 25 years. But Lynch says, no, you haven't seen, they haven't seen each other at all until now. Other than the, the NATO scene, which he said, like, you know, you remember her from the mansion. Yeah. He does, he does reveal that, but I think that's what he wanted. I mean, he actually showed NATO trans, you know, forming into Diane. So, you know, the, Cooper McLaughlin read the script and, you know, he sees that on the page, but he, he needs to have some kind of context. And Lynch is like, he, he just tells him like, well, that's who you saw in part three. But I don't think it has any strong like kind of relevance to kind of the subtext of the mystery of like who Lynch thinks NATO is or who he wants us to think she is. Because what I'm like positing now is that like the, what we saw is like NATO and ultimately Diane is it, it's a manipulation. It's a Judy manipulation to Cooper. And it's like the the, the A storyline of like Mr. C and NATO uh, reuniting for some kind of grand end game failed because Mr. C was thwarted. And so once that end game happened, Judy's like, okay, plan B. Plan I'm going to transform into like a familiar Diane to Cooper and go on this new journey to ultimately get Laura Palmer and back to the Sarah Palmer house, et cetera, et cetera. And what, what, what Diane saw in part 18 outside of the motel when Cooper's getting the key to the room and she saw her double is like the Diane, like, you know, kind of recognizing like, you know, she is not again. Yeah, she this is, is not, not real. She's not real. She's not yeah. real. Exactly. Yeah, she's still a tulpa. It's like all Diane, everything in right. Diane. I think even just do when she popped up, I look, I just watched 17 again and that look, she looks just like Lil in 17 with that impish face and their, and their hair. Like she doesn't look, <laughs> she looks like that first shot of her. She looks scary. She looks like she's not really Diane. Yeah. And uh, so I still kind of think that, I don't know, but it's, it, it was interesting to see like how Lynch was directing the whole series. Like as if everything was happening, was happening on the nose as it was occurring. You know what I'm saying? In real time, in the script, like it wasn't like, okay, well, this is Dougie and Dougie's in La La Land. This is not real. You know, they're taking like, it's, Dougie is really doing this. Like everything was really happening. And then he goes into the editing booth 
and he turns it into like this masterpiece of like mystery to where you don't know what the hell's real. And it's interesting to see, like think about all the cast and crew. Like they didn't know, they had no idea what it was going to turn out like. And uh, it's like they, they were building like a nice house. And then they realized they built like the fucking Taj Mahal and <laughs> they didn't even realize they were building it. You know, he turned it into that in post. Well, and so, I think that's the reason amazing. why we didn't get any footage of post-production because I think that's where really kind of the mystery and the magic were coming together and it would have been too revealing. And for me, yeah. that would have been the yeah, really... Maybe another one. Yeah. Do you think they filmed it? Do you think uh, Jason S. or Joseph K. was in there <laughs> filming? I think there's the, probably... In the post-production booth, it is 12 weeks <laughs> of pure agony. We've gone back in time. Yeah, I don't know what he would do, but I would love that would be great. I would have just yeah. loved like a seven or ten minute documentary of just kind of quick shots of Lynch, like you know, directing stuff that isn't too revealing, and and Dean Hurley, big Dean Hurley, doing the sound design, and maybe some of the uh, with Angelo because we didn't get any Angelo Badalamente because there was no. Well, no, we did. The, did you see the original trailer? One of the trailers was him playing the piano over the <laughs> over the woods. Oh yeah, in the first. Disc. Well, yeah, was that was one of the teasers. But part of the whole, hilarious. you know, these documentaries and and Mark Frost's presence was very minimal. We saw him on set and heard him in the uh, documentary that was shot on location. But we just saw like just a few appearances uh, in the Jason S documentary and in in uh, in uh, Richard Bamer's documentary as well. So he didn't, you know, really. I mean, I'm sure he said he was on set almost fifty percent of the time. But this was Lynch, and uh, it was the David Lynch show, and I couldn't have been happier because it was really, I like I said, one of the greatest pieces of behind the scenes filmmaking that I've ever seen, and I'm glad that we'll have this. I, I think along with like part eight and the and all of these eighteen hours being played on a loop in a museum, I think this documentary should as well be a companion yeah, piece as well. Absolutely. You know? He was great. Well, it's like the Orson Welles line. Like, Hollywood is, like, the artist's, like, greatest, like, magic kit, you know, or whatever. Like, that's what he was. He was, like, just a kid in a candy shop, dude. And <laughs> just it was great <laughs> to see him work his magic. Uh, anything else? Last thoughts for this episode, my friend? Well, I just want to, uh, anyone, to say to anyone out there who uh, has not bought the Blu-ray or might be on the fence, it, it, it really is worth uh, oh, yeah, your worth money. It. It, it, it really is a treat it is almost like watching a new episode of twin peaks and so not only do you get 18 hours of, of you know this you know, sprawling narrative mystery you get to see what went into making that well on that note thanks for tuning in everybody we'll see you guys next week <laughs>